thank you for the, this word. Thank you for the preaching that we have just been reminded of uh, what you said long ago. And Lord, we would ask that you would speak to our hearts even today. Lord, we have been singing your praises. And Lord Jesus, you are the king of heaven. You are the king of earth. You are the savior of the world. And Lord, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear your words. We want to live in a way that is pleasing to you. And we want to honor you. And Lord, we have gathered this morning from the opening of our time in your name, Lord Jesus. It's because of you that we're here. It's because of you that we have hope of a relationship with God. And it is because of all that you have done that we have hope of living the life that you call us to live. And so we rejoice in you. We surrender our hearts to you. We celebrate your kingship. And Father, we pray that even now you would help us to worship you in word as we have just worshiped you in song. Let our hearts deeply believe and trust that you are the king of the world. May every one of us This morning, praise you, Lord Jesus, as the Savior of the world, the one and only who has died, been buried, and then resurrected. And so our faith is in you. We confess that we do not trust in ourselves. We are trusting in you, Lord Jesus. And so we ask by your Spirit, would you let our hearts rise up, as it were, and worship you with all that we can, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We want to glorify you, Lord Jesus, because one day we will stand before you face to face and sing those words we just sang. And let us begin even now to delight in all of who you are. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, These words that you just had read before you uh, tell us that we have jumped now back into our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We are moving through what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we return to that this morning. And the words before us that uh, were just read that sort of linger in our ears is love your enemies. Love your enemies is the command that we see Jesus giving to us. And so love your enemies is the, the main idea of what we're thinking of today. Uh, but as we go back to this Sermon on the Mount, um, just to give you a little picture, we were a group of us just traveled to Israel and were able to be there. And so uh, we were able to go to this site and, and see where Jesus would preach this, um, this sermon. And it is on the sloping hills of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, where the crowd would have stood is now a banana plantation. And yet you can um, get a little bit of a feel for what that might have been like. The hill kind of slopes down. The the lower part of the picture is a a little road where you could stand. And the ground and the sloping nature of the hill sort of forms a natural amphitheater. And so Jesus could have easily stood uh, with his back against the top portion of this little hill and spoken to the entire valley and allowed uh, thousands of people to hear his words And so we're listening again, as it were, to the words of Jesus and what he has been saying to the crowd. So picture yourself there. Just remove the bananas if you can. And uh, just imagine that you're sitting there listening to Jesus because that's exactly what we want to do. And as we move into um, this sermon, we want to remind ourselves what Jesus is doing. So he is marking off um, different 
illustrations of the righteousness that's required for the kingdom of heaven. And he does so by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And we, we see this beginning at just after Matthew 5, 20. If you go back with me, just hold your, your Bible open there in Matthew chapter 5. But in 5, 20, Jesus has begun to expound the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he has just made a statement that he's now going to explain. And the rest of chapter 5 is an explanation. So this is his his premise, or his thesis, as it were, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then so the crowd is left wondering, well, what does that righteousness look like, Jesus? If, if righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, how? What kind of righteousness are you talking about? And then he gives six illustrations of the surpassing righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And he does so beginning by saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have taught you this, and then I'm teaching you this. And so he says, the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees uh, talk about avoiding committing murder, but the kind of righteousness of the kingdom of heaven would say, avoid evil thinking, hateful thoughts, or even harsh words towards someone. That's a much deeper righteousness, which is what Jesus is doing. He is taking the righteousness that is true and then applying it to the heart. He's taking it deep within us. And so I hope we will hear what Jesus is talking about. In second illustration, verses 27 to 30, he says, The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees have said, Do not commit adultery. But I'm saying to you that the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven would not even entertain lustful thoughts in the heart and would go to great lengths to rid itself of those kind of thoughts. The third illustration is in verses 31 to 32. It says, The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees would tell you that it's okay to divorce a woman, and, and yet that's just as long as you give her a certificate of divorce. But he says, The righteousness of the kingdom of heaven realizes that in so doing, you're forcing her into adultery because she's going to have to get remarried in order to live. So you're, you're making her commit adultery. And fourth illustration has to do with swearing falsely. The righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees said, don't swear falsely. And Jesus said, the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is such that you always tell the truth, not just when you're swearing to some higher authority. Your words are always truthful, never lying. And then fifthly, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees called for, if somebody hits you, you have permission to hit them back, according to the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you know what? The righteousness of the kingdom of heaven would say, you could actually be gracious to somebody who hits you. You can be generous to someone who demands something of you. There's an entirely different spirit in the people who are members of the kingdom of heaven than there are in the world. And Jesus is calling us, as you heard Chris a couple of weeks say, I'm calling you to be a different kind of people. An entirely different kind of people. And so Jesus is explaining the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, which is to be resident in all of his people. And so Jesus says, and we'll start with now the sixth illustration, which is where we're at today, thinking about your enemies. What should we think about your enemies? And by the way, does anybody have any enemies? Only about six of you. I don't believe you. I find this sermon absolutely devastating, in case you're wondering. 
when you think about these words, these are the words of Jesus. This is, this is not a religious story. This is our king that we just sang about and praising, speaking to us. He, he calls us to this. And I don't know about all of the other five illustrations that you just heard. I went through them quickly because we've dealt with them in the past, but every one of them strikes a blow at self-righteousness and I find devastates me. So here's what Jesus says. And see if you can hear this. Verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And as is true with all that the scribes and Pharisees have been saying, they're partly right. They just also get it partly wrong. And where they go wrong is incredibly devastatingly wrong. So what is right? They're quoting Leviticus 19.18. Okay, so let's go to 19.18. And this will be devastating to you too, if you hear it. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but, what's the next phrase? You shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's the word of God. First part, you shall not take vengeance. Okay, everybody's good with that. You can probably muster up enough courage. We can't take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge. You got any grudges? You shall not bear a grudge. And what's next? You shall love your neighbor. So there's a negative aspect. This is always the case with God's law. There's a negative, don't do this, don't do this, but do this. Don't bear vengeance, don't bear a grudge, but what should you do? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now you'll notice in that command, if we could pop that back up again, 1918, something's missing. There's no hate your enemy anywhere in there that was added by the scribes and the pharisees oh be careful about adding to scripture so the word of god love your neighbor as yourself but you'll not see hate your enemy in there and in fact you'll not see it anywhere in the old testament but it had been added and so in adding this you might think well if you love your neighbor isn't it true you can hate your enemy Doesn't that make sense? Yes, to natural people who are spiritually dead, which is all of the world. It's you and me apart from the Holy Spirit. But let's just get in our heads. What does the Old Testament say about how you treat the enemy, the the foreigner or the stranger? Because the the principle that is, is being commanded here of hating your enemies overlooks the clear commands that are elsewhere found in the Old Testament. So for example, Jesus has just quoted, he's taken a quote out of Leviticus. Let's just go back to chapter 19 of Leviticus. At the beginning of the chapter and at the end are are commands which help us understand how are we to treat the stranger, the alien, or the enemy? Because sometimes those are, are combined. In Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, God commanded When you are plowing and reaping your field, I'm just going to summarize what you're seeing up there. When you're reaping your field, leave a little bit for the poor people. Don't harvest all the way up to the edges. Leave those for the poor. And when you're carrying your bundles and you realize you dropped some, just leave it. Don't go back and get it. Leave it for those who are poor. 
This is God's command for those who are strangers or sojourning. There's that word, sojourning in the land. God is telling you, take care of the alien, the stranger who might be, in your mind, thinking about the enemy. So this is the foreigner. This is the word of God. Think about those who are less fortunate than you. And then in 1933 and 34, still in Leviticus 19, the same chapter where love your neighbor, how do you do that? Here's another example. When a, soj- a stranger sojourns within your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Why? Because you were strangers one time in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know what it's like to be an outcast. Don't forget it. Apply it to your life. That's what God is saying. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees are completely overlooking this. Completely. By saying, love your neighbor and so hate your enemy. And another command, and this one's incredible, of Exodus 23, 4 and 5. This, everybody needs to know this verses in the Bible. If you meet your what? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall let it keep going and go chuckle to yourself that he's, he's way out in left field. No, you go get it. Bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of the one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it and you shall rescue it with him. When you see your enemy in trouble, what does God the Father call you to do? Stop what you're doing and help him get out of his problem. All of this conveniently overlooked by the scribes and the Pharisees. So, you know, think about it. Who's your enemy? I asked you at the beginning. When you see your coworker and the printer is going bananas on the report he's trying to print, you don't chuckle and go off to your cubicle. You stop and help him get the paper jam out of the printer. Or you apply it. When your neighbor's car breaks down, the guy who always parking in your grass, you help him. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And it strikes me, Uh, God does not call us to do what we can do in our own strength. He calls us to do what we can only do in his strength. That's what we're being called to do today. These words call us to that. God never commanded hatred of enemies. However, if you want to overlook portions of scripture, there is some biblical evidence which you could use to support an argument, right? Right? Think about all of the commands against the inhabitants of the promised land that God told Israel to drive out. And why was that? It was because of their own sinfulness. It's not because those people were innocent, but they had, had Abraham 400 years, God said to Abraham, in 400 years, your people are going to take the land, but not now because the sins of the Ammonites are not yet complete. They're not wicked enough yet for me to pronounce that kind of judgment on them. So you're going to have to wait for 400 years, Abraham. And then your children are going to go, go into the land. So you could take all those commands, if you wanted, and apply it to hatred of enemy. Or you can think about the imprecatory psalms, those psalms which say, God, my enemy who, is, who hates you, would you bring down judgment? On him? You remember those kind of psalms. They're, they're in there if you dare to read them. Right? You can look to those to support this kind of argument. And in fact, the Pharisees who we're talking about 
Um, on our trip to Israel, by the way, we were able to stop at the Qumran community, uh, which the ruins of that city is, is still there. That little village is still there. It is the Qumran community that out of which the, the Pharisees came. So the Essenes were a group of a very separatist, puritists who wanted to get away from the Hellenization that was happening among the Jewish culture and get away into the desert and avoid that kind of spiritual contamination. And out of this community came the Pharisees. So they, arising out of this, this hatred of the enemy of God, it's not uncommon or surprising that we would hear something like this. And in fact, among the scrolls that were discovered in the caves of Qumran was a, uh, one scroll that contained this, um, that they may love the sons of the light and hate all of the sons of the darkness. Right, which you could understand in a spiritual sense. Uh, and for them, mostly this means non-Jews. Right, the enemies are the non-Jews, those who have rejected God. And so we have permission to hate them. But Jesus comes along and, and captures this teaching of the Pharisees and says, I'm, I'm calling you to something different. This is something completely different. And so he says in verse 44, so you've heard it said, love your enemies, I mean, love your friends and hate your enemies. And I'm saying to you in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 44, look at the words of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when you hear this, it, it occurs to me, looking at verse 44, uh, this is impossible. Who, who can love your enemies? Who can do this? <laughs> and I would go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and say, you can't do any of it without the Spirit of God within you. We can do none of this apart from the help of the who? The helper whom God has sent to enable his people to do what he's called us to do. You can't live a holy life without the help of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely impossible. You'll become a legalist like the Pharisees who think you can do it in your own strength but fall miserably short. And so here we see this is absolutely impossible to accomplish. So loving enemies, I mean hating enemies is very easy, isn't it? You don't have to work up any kind of spirituality to do that at all. Very natural to hate enemies. That's our disposition. People are mean to me, I'll be mean back to them. That's very simple. Jesus calls us to do something very supernatural, which is why we need the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in looking at this, this command, the word for love here is agapao, which you have probably heard uh, several times, and sometimes people argue that this is used only in reference to God's love. Uh, that's not the case here. We can't limit that kind of understanding because this is used in the context of men and towards one another. So all four times that the word love hears, it is agapao. And so that's the word that we're talking about. And sometimes it has been argued that you can love your enemies, you just don't have to like them. You can do that, right? You can love them, just don't have to like them. And, and I really struggle with this because the word agapao, according to the uh, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, defines love as to regard with affection and concern. That's what the word means. It entails some degree of affection. In other words, the heart has to be engaged and while it is true that love is a choice and manifested in concrete actions, 
which we can often say that love is an action. It's a choice, right? It cannot be limited merely to manifestations of concrete actions that are completely devoid of sentiment and emotion and genuine concern. That's not what the word means. And if that's true, think about how wrong Paul has been to praise concrete actions of giving one's body. Paul says, if I sell all of my possessions and I give away all of my body and everything that I have, but I have not love, it's what? Nothing. Meaning, if you do everything good and right and helpful, that's, that, that's not love. It's part of it, but it's not the extent of it. There has to be some kind of emotional engagement. And so D.A. Carson says this, The verb to love, agapao, has a wide range of meanings, but included among them is a generous, warm, costly self-sacrifice for another's good. This is what Jesus is calling us to to love our enemies. And you might be thinking, absolutely impossible. I don't have warm, fuzzy feelings towards my enemies. So how on earth can this be done? And Jesus' answer here is what? What does he say? Love your enemies and what? Pray for them. Verse 43, love your enemies and pray for them. So prayer is an act of love. That's where it begins. Your heart begins to move as you earnestly pray. And I think that means you pray for the good of your enemies, not their destruction. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about. We think, ah, I'll pray for him. (laughs) You better believe I'll pray for him. Well, here's the words of Jesus on another occasion. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Do good, love, bless when they curse and pray for them. All of this happens to come together as you think about your enemies and you have them. Maybe it's a neighbor, neighbor. maybe it's your business partner, maybe it's an in-law, maybe it's a person in your own household and, and what, when I think about prayer, you know, sometimes we think of, what, what's the purpose of prayer? You ever wonder about the purpose of prayer? It, it's not as though prayer is a means by which God inf- is informed about things he doesn't know, right? No, nobody's educating God when we're praying. Like when you say, God, I, I, I need help, you know, paying my taxes. He's like, wow, I had no idea. Thank you for telling me that, right? That's not the purpose of prayer. Prayer, we think, is a means by which we get to convince God and change his mind to do what we want to do. I think prayer is probably a means by which we enter into the presence of the Lord and our minds is changed to God's will. Our will conformed to his will. Isn't that what Jesus said when he agonized in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. He came with an opinion. Is there another way we can do this? Is there any other way we can get around this? And what did he end on? Nevertheless, not what I want, but you want, Lord Jesus, God the Father. And so prayer for an enemy. Uh, you, You can have a genuine movement of your heart, a warming of your heart towards your enemy 
if you go to the Lord in prayer. You come into the presence of God and you say, I really have, I mean, pray honestly. You can't fake God out when you're praying. Lord, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm really struggling, but change my heart to want what you want. What do you want for this person? What do you want for them? How, how can I participate in what you want? And so pr- that's an act of love. Praying honest prayers to God the Father for your enemies is an act of love. So that's how, but why? Jesus now offers some incentive for why you should do this. Why should you love your enemies? He gives two reasons. The first is because God is like that, so be like him. And the second is you'll be rewarded by God. So first, why pray for your enemies? First reason, to be like God. So look at Matthew 5, 44 and 45 with me. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is not saying here you can work your way into being a son of of God if you do this. He's not saying that. He's saying manifest the true nature of being his son by living like he lives. This is what God does, he says. God is nice, he is kind, he is generous to wicked people. He says evil people get sunrise and rain every day. They deserve none of it. And yet God the Father is gracious and generous towards them. He pours out goodness on undeserving people. And if you're his child, do the same thing. If you want to be like your Father in heaven, truly then be gracious to ungracious people. Be kind to unkind people. Be good to mean people. Be nice to selfish individuals because that's how God is. So model your life after the character of God the Father. So live like him. If God is gracious and kind to undeserving wicked people, then you be gracious and kind to wicked and undeserving people. That's what what Jesus is saying. Be like your father. And then secondly, There's a reward that comes with this. Look at verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do this? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? God does not reward those who do what everybody else does. He rewards those who are different from the world. It takes nothing to be mean to someone who is mean to you. There's no spiritual requirement for that. What is required of the Holy Spirit is then to respond to evil with kindness. And Jesus says that will be rewarded. That kind of behavior will be rewarded. Being good to those who are evil towards you is going to be rewarded by God the Father because it, is, it requires a dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so there you are. If, if, you're only, if you only say hi to those people who say hi to you, what more are you doing than every other wicked person on the planet? This is what Jesus is saying. But God the Father will reward you. And if you're thinking about coworkers right now, and you should be, Co-workers, neighbors, family, and friends. And you're thinking, how in the world am I going to do this? How can this be done? I would say by complete dependence upon the divine presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Who enables us to do all that Jesus has called us to do. So I, I found a quote I want to share with you as I was doing a little prep. and To return evil for good 
is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. If you want to be like God and allow his spirit within you to help you to do what you cannot do on your own. You can't do this on our own. But yet we are called to this. Then depend upon the strength of the Lord. And then the final verse is Jesus' summary of this whole section from 520 all the way through here. Here's the conclusion. 548, look at it with me. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That, that's the call of Christ. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think Jesus is now bringing back into the picture to the scribes and Pharisees who might have been around the crowd listening exactly what the chapter in Leviticus that they previously quoted, it begins with. Verse 2 in chapter 19 of Leviticus says this. This is God speaking. He says, Speak to all the congregation, the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are called to holiness. You want to be holy? Be like your heavenly father. Jesus is simply repeating what God said about himself in Leviticus. So that's Jesus' summary of that entire argument. He began it with your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And he concludes it with be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And so when you hear a verse like that, what happens within you? I'm devastated. I I hear this and I'm completely wiped out. And I have to share a quote I found with uh, C.S. Lewis. He was criticized for saying that he didn't like the, uh, he didn't care for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And he wrote a response. And I want to read you his response. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who could like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Well-spoken C.S. Lewis. The sledgehammer is, of course, this call to holiness. It's, it's a very clear call to, this is what I want for my children. You want to be like me, then I expect holiness. I call you to sinless perfection. And all of us go, I'm, I'm done for. I'm done. Woe is me, I am undone. If that's the calling, I'm undone. I, I'm, I'm devastated. And, and don't you... This is, this is a serious call to sober reflection on your life because Jesus is calling us to holiness. And, and what are the questions we always ask? Well, can I do this? Can, can I say this? If, if that's the holiness line, can I get right over it? We're always asking, can I do this? Can I go this far? Can I do that? Can I buy this? Can I watch this? Can I say that? The question is, is it holy? Can I fill my taxes out like this? Well, is it holy? Can I watch this? Is it holy? Can I drink this? Is it holy? 
That, that's the call of Christ. And, and yet, anybody who has any self-awareness knows I fall so far short. And yet, what do we see? Today is Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus marched in, well, in March, he rode a donkey, right? He went into Jerusalem, you know what I mean? He went in on a donkey, beginning the, the final week of his life, whereby he would, what? Die for sinful people. He didn't die for holy people. Do you know that? He died for sinful people. He laid down his life for those who are completely aware that we get devastated by calls to holiness. And yet, what does he say? If you will die with me, I will give you my Holy Spirit. I will give you the very essence of holiness to dwell within you, to begin to help you embrace this holiness. We were talking about this in the marriage class this morning, thinking about sanctification. And marriage is one of the means whereby we are sanctified. Right? You go into marriage thinking you're a fine person, you have patience, you're good, you've got it all worked out, and suddenly you meet somebody who says, man, I didn't know that about you, I'd have never married you, right? And yet, sanctification happens. You begin to see yourself through the eyes of someone else, and you realize, wow, I need to change. I, I, I don't want to stay this way. And, and that's this call of do you want to allow the Spirit of God to change you from the inside out? Because you put your faith in Jesus and that's what will happen. He will begin to change you and fortunately he does it gradually, slowly. He, he changes us into his image and yet we are conformed into the image of Christ. And he accepts those who will come and say, I am a wretched sinner and I need help. Will you help me? Will you save me? Will you forgive me? And God Almighty says, through the blood of Jesus, yes! Yes, I will take your mess. I will put my holiness within you and I will begin to change you. So what's the conclusion? Let me wrap this up for us. Um, first of all, beware of adding to Scripture. Scribes and the Pharisees, they quoted Leviticus 19.18 correctly up to a point, but then they added, yes, love your neighbor as yourself, but hate your enemy. It's not in the Bible. Careful what you think is in Scripture and what's not. Because we do have some things in our lives that we think, that's in the Bible, like God helps those who help himself. Find that in the Bible today. That's your homework. Go get your concordance out and do a little search. It's not there. A lot of people think it is. Or you have to forget and forgive. Well, we're called to forgive, but we're not required to forget. Right? That comes from God saying, I will forget your sins. I will remove them as far as the east is from the west. But it's not as though God suddenly has no knowledge. It means I'm not going to hold it against you. The next argument, next time you come saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say, ha, what'd you do the last time? So careful what we add to scripture. Don't add. Secondly, love your enemies. This is the calling. Love your enemies. How? Pray for them earnestly. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Do good to those who are evil towards you. Be kind to those who are unkind to you. Why should we do this? Because God is like that. God the Father is gracious and generous to unkind and wicked people. 
He is patient with impatient people who deserve his wrath. And yet, he is tender. Every day, the sun comes up. It is a reminder of God's grace. Every time the rain comes down, thank God we'll have food. All of that completely undeserved. So do this loving of your enemies because God does that. And then secondly, because he promises to reward you. He promises a reward. Who, the reward could, who, who, who could imagine what it could be? I, I don't care what it is. If I see a smiling God saying, well done, I'm, I'm, I'm content. So we are wired to please our Father. And then lastly, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Love your enemies, why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. He died while we were his enemy. He gave his life while we were ignoring him and watching TV. He laid down his, the, the blood of his soul while we were completely disinterested. And we would have stayed that way if he hadn't have said, Todd Cravens, wake up! And I woke up at the age of eight. And you, we, we were his enemies, and yet he calls us into his family. So he chooses undeserving people. Therefore, we should choose to be nice to undeserving people around us. You can't do it on your own. But by the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus, we can make progress. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have called us to something that is exceedingly high and holy. And Lord, help us. Who can say anything but will you help us? We confess our sins. We confess our need of forgiveness. And uh, so many times we fail. And yet, Lord, I pray, would you once again fill us with your spirit? Would you revive a, a heart that yearns to do nothing but please you? Would you cultivate holiness within us? God, would you cause us to hate sin and evil and to love righteousness and goodness? Would you turn our hearts away from ourselves and to you? Father, would you pour out your, your, your spirit on this people so that when we go to work tomorrow or home this afternoon, there is something renewed within us that wants to obey you at all costs. Create within us a warm, tender-hearted, generous affection for the people who are so lost and blind that they respond in hatefulness to us because they see a little bit of you in us. God, let us be patient with the people around us who, who can't stand us. And Lord, I pray, change our hearts. Lord Jesus, transform us again more and more into your image. And Lord, I pray, change relationships. Relationships in this room that are broken and wounded. Transform them. Pour grace into us such that we see you at work doing things that are different. Give us resources beyond ourselves coming from your spirit so that we can manifest what you're calling for, Lord Jesus. 
We are your children. We want to obey you. And Father, if there are those in this room who are not yet your children and want nothing to do with this verse, then I pray that you would be gracious to them as well and grant the faith that is needed in this moment to trust you. Lord, you change hearts in an instant. And I pray that you would do that, Lord Jesus. Be gracious to us. Be kind to us and gentle with us. And Lord Jesus, it, may you fill us with your love as we sing about your spirit and all that you have accomplished. Would you fill us with love, your love, which is far beyond us. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.